Well, how's this working for y'all? Is this oh, great. interesting? Yes. New stuff, old stuff, you've heard it before? Some of it. Some of it? A lot of new stuff. A lot of new stuff? Okay, just a quick review, and I'll abbreviate this one so that I'm trying to make up a little time here, but what was the main point of last week? That sums it up very well. Did everybody hear that? Evolution is really not science, if you didn't hear him. It's just simply man's idea. In fact, what it is, it's a replacement for the truth, a replacement for the one true God, because man has to have something to satisfy that intellectual thought, that emptiness that tells him that there has to be a creator. And in fact, if we have time, I might even talk about fact that there's no such thing as a real atheist. If I don't get to that, remind me and I'll answer that question. So last time, the thing that we concentrated on is demonstrating that there's really no scientific evidence for the theory of evolution. It is a philosophical, in fact, you might even say it's a religious idea. And in our introduction, we stress the idea that people believe in it by faith because the evidence is not there. So we're dealing with the issue evolution versus creation, two parts. First part last week. This week we're going to look at the evidence for creation. Now, in the introduction, I mentioned that this is also a faith position in that we believe it because uh, we believe what the Scriptures teach, but there's also scientific evidence that supports at least that idea more evidence than what there is for evolution. So we went over primarily the scientific evidence that the evolutionists use. We look at the mechanism, the mechanism that they say makes evolution possible. And I gave you 160 years of evidence that evolutionists have been conducting in the area of mutations because they want to prove their theory. And their conclusion is that basically... There are some major problems with the idea of mutations in terms of a mechanism. Mutations do occur, but they do what the Bible teaches. In other words, they degenerate. Ever since the fall of man, there's been degeneration. And that's what mutations do on a physical level. So we're going to look at the alternative now, creation versus evolution. Let's take a look at creation. And there's a little brief introduction and kind of a little review of some of the evidence of evolution, except the stress, at least this first point I'm making here. And on your outline, I've got it broken down a little bit more. So some of the evidence, just real quickly, we talked about the geological column. I uh, should have shown you a photograph of what it generally looks like. We'll talk a lot more about it next week when we talk about the Genesis flood. I'm going to give you evidence for a worldwide flood, and I'm going to use this chart and others like it. This is pretty typical. It's got major problems. It's very theoretical. And one of the things I'll stress when we talk about the Genesis flood, this is a reconstruction of Earth's history, essentially, on one little table or chart there. The only problem is it does not exist anywhere on the face of the earth exactly like you find it on the chart. 
Yes, there is a Cambrian layer. Yes, there's a Jurassic layer. There's a Permian layer. But it doesn't all fit just nice and neat like you find it in the geology textbooks. I also said in the introduction, we don't have, we as believers don't have a major problem with geology in general, particularly that aspect that deals with present studies in terms of observational science. We have a definite problem with one branch of geology called historical geology. This is the essence of historical geology, a reconstructing of earth history. We have a major problem with that. We'll talk about that in the Genesis Flood. Just a little background slide there. So I talked about an introduction. Last time we talked a little bit about the fossil record or paleontology. Paleontology is the study of fossils. I gave this to a homeschool group and an eight-year-old girl said, uh, well, why don't they just call it fossilology? (laughs) So the rest of our seminar, we call it fossilology. I said, that's a good idea. That's more descriptive and it's just as accurate as paleontology. So the fossil record does not support evolution. In fact, it was once one of the major evidences that they would point to And it was the great hope of Darwin that the fossil record would, in fact, validate his theory. He himself said that if the fossil record does not validate my theory, then my theory has some major problems. He hoped over several years, because paleontology was relatively young at that time, he thought in the next few years that it would validate his theory. 160 years later, it destroys the theory of evolution. Instead, what we have, and we talked about this last week, it shows that the kinds remain kinds. They persist throughout the fossil record. So paleontology supports more the idea of God creating things distinct from one another, and those distinctions remain. There's not a movement from one species to another, and certainly not from one kind to another. Now, I use the word kind. That's the biblical word, or at least the translation. We may talk a little bit more about that. So paleontology really supports uh, the idea of distinct kinds, and God created things after, or creatures and plant life, after their kind. They reproduce after their kind, Genesis chapter 1. So that's supported by the geological record or the fossil record. Geology and other areas as well supports the idea of what the Bible teaches, and we'll talk some more about that when we talk about the Genesis flood, because I think geology gives us overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. Now, if you listen to the historical geologist that believes in the geological column, They will say, well, there's no Genesis flood in here. There's no evidence for a Genesis flood. Well, what's the problem? We'll deal with that hopefully next week, Lord willing. But there's other evidence from geology as well that gives evidence that God is creator. We'll talk more about that. This is a prettier slide of the same thing, giving the uh, layers. These represent the different layers And I've added here what they propose in terms of their estimates in terms of time. These are 135 million years in the past. 
Cambrian labor layer over 600 million years. So those represent million years. Each of these layers, for example, the Jurassic, you're familiar with it because you all saw the movie, right? <laughs> Where dinosaurs predominantly are found, this layer supposedly took 46 million years to form. We're given a different interpretation of the same data. And remember, that's why I gave you all that background on interpreting data in our introduction. So the geological column actually gives us evidence of, for, of what the Bible teaches. And I make a sharp division here, this red line I've added, between what's called the Precambrian and the Cambrian layer. Again, next week we'll go into a lot of detail on that. Just to give you a preview... I believe that everything that you have here, all of this evidence above this red line is evidence for a Genesis flood. And it fits better a flood model than it does the evolutionary model. And I believe that this is the boundary, the Precambrian layer is the boundary of what the Genesis flood, below that the Genesis flood did not destroy. It destroyed everything above and redeposited all the layers. So, summary of next week, don't need to come. Okay. We also, we didn't look at last week, but mathematics, if you want another branch of science and mathematics, if you study it, you can find evidence against evolution and actually supports the idea that uh, points towards a creator. So let me give you a brief, uh, we just didn't have time to look at this last time, but from mathematics, let me give you just one example. And this is from the laws of probability. These are mathematicians. Evolution supposedly is as a result of random processes, in other words, chance. And the laws of probability have been developed by mathematicians that you can test that. In other words, what's the likelihood of certain events taking place? All right? So let's use uh, an example. You all probably have a Scrabble game or used to, those of you that are a little older, with all of the letters. In fact, you have several of them in these little squares, and you spell out. Remember, you know the game, right? Well, if you just get one of each, 26, that's how many... There are in the English language. Mix them all up or put them in a box or a hat or something. And randomly, in other words, by chance, this is what the evolutionist says, by chance you pick out one at a time and you pick out just three. And what is the probability? This is according to mathematics. What is the probability? And basically the formulas are very simple. The probability of drawing out in the first pull, you pull out an A. Second one, you pull out a B. Second one, you pull out a C in that order. You know the calculation? How do you figure the probability? This is one chance in several. Very good. You, uh, you have one in 26 to the third power because you have three, three picks there. That comes out... One in 17,576 tries, you'll get that combination. So you have to do it possibly 17,576 times before you randomly, by chance, come up with that arrangement of letters. 
What about if you do the same thing except now you just want to spell out evolution? Okay. You have to have more yeah, O's. Well, that's okay. We'll put in enough O's, but uh, <laughs> if you do it randomly, you have the same thing. But now you have nine letters, so it's one over twenty-six to the ninth power because you have nine letters. It's one in five point four trillion probability. So you have to do it that many times to be able to come up with that combination, or in that many tries by the laws of probability, then you should be able to come out and spell the word evolution. And pull them out in that order. In that order, yeah, exactly. What about the theory of evolution? Well, we can do the same calculation, except now we need a space. So we have one over 27, and you have 23 letters and a couple of spaces to the 23rd power. You're coming up with numbers that are astronomical, 1 in 8.3 to the 32nd power. These are the laws of probability. Creationists didn't make these things up, okay? What I'm getting at, as you can see, what is the probability of all of the things that you need for life coming together by chance, by random processes? We can at least make some estimates by the laws of probability. And we can come up with, say, just one protein molecule. That's not life. That's a small element of life. Just one protein molecule. The probability is 1 in 10 to 520. That's more than all of the atoms in the universe. So the point being is virtually that's impossible. Once you get in the range of a power of about 40, 50, you're basically saying this is virtually impossible to happen by chance, just by the laws of probability. One protein model here. Uh, there's only 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. And this... How, how do we know how many atoms are in the universe? Somebody counted them? Yeah. No. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> Astrophysicists have estimated the number of stars, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, it's an approximation. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. But once you get into the, these numbers, one to the 81st power, yeah, right. I mean, you're talking about magnitudes there. Notice the difference. This is, this is just astronomically larger than 10 to the 80. But just to give you a feel, about 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. Okay? So 10 to the 520, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Okay? Now, the evolutionist says life started in simple form, simple life form. Tonight I'm going to show you there is no such thing as simple life. No such thing. We'll, we'll talk some more about that. So one one-celled animal, Mycoplasma hominis H39, any biologist? I don't even know what it is, but it's a one-celled animal. Has 600 different proteins, each with 400 amino acids. What I'm just trying to impress you with is just the, the numbers here. Evolution is impossible. Random processes don't produce life. So life does not come about by random processes, just by the laws of probability. So for all 600 different proteins, one in five to the, or 520th power times 600. Five, 10 to the 520th is astronomical. 
10 to the 80 is astronomical. Now you're multiplying that by 600. You're, you're, we're talking about impossibilities here. So the laws of probability basically say evolution is just totally unbelievable. It, it, it's totally impossible. So you can use that argument as well. So that's kind of other evidence against evolution. Now let's look at positive evidence that tells us that or at least supports the idea of what the Bible teaches concerning God as creator and some of the associated teaching in the early chapters of Genesis as well. And let's look at evidence from physics, pretty solid science. One of the time we could talk about even the first law, there are two laws of thermodynamics. The first law actually supports the idea of a creation, because the first law of thermodynamic, how many engineers are in here? Do you, you had a few engineers, one, a couple. Okay, this is one of the things you study, thermodynamics, regardless of whether civil, mechanical, or nuclear. But anyway, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, they sound kind of impressive. They're easy to visualize, and I'm going to make them easy to see here. But they are some of the most fundamental of all of the laws of science. They're unquestioned in the scientific community. They're observed every day. They affect virtually every science. They're involved in biology. You can see them in uh, chemistry and geology, all of the other sciences. So they're very fundamental. So the, the laws of thermodynamics basically support the idea of a creator the first law, basically, is that there is, there is no material or energy that is created. All you can do with that that is already created is transform it from one form to another. Einstein demonstrated, and it was verified later by experimentation, that energy and, and mass, or energy and matter, there's a relationship. You can convert matter, or mass, into energy. And all you need is a little tiny bit, and you get lots of energy. That's basically E equals MC squared. That's the energy conversion of a lot, small piece of mass into an atomic explosion. So you can convert it, but you cannot create it. Well, the question is, is where did it all come from? And obviously, philosophers, scientists come up with different theories. The Bible says God created it from nothing. Creation. So there's no creation. There's no creation going on. What we have now is all we have. The second law deals primarily with energy, and it basically has the idea that energy, when you're converting energy, there's always an energy loss. And we see it in different forms. You can see it not only in thermodynamics per se, but we see it in every science as well. Well, evolution tells us the very opposite. There has to be a principle in the universe of innovation rather than a principle of degeneration. That's the second law. So a principle of innovation where you have higher and higher complexity. In other words, there has to be something that produces more and more complexity. Simple life, as they say, to more complex life. Inert matter to life itself. That's more complexity. So there has to be some principle in the universe that does that. There is no such principle, but in fact, there is the very opposite principle or law, you might say, the very opposite idea. The second law of thermodynamics, universally accepted, 
No exceptions observed by the scientific community. There have been some exceptions, but they're discounted because they're recorded in documents that are not acceptable to the scientific community. Miracles are reversals of the second law of thermodynamics in some cases. Resurrection, reversal of the second law of thermodynamics. But they're cast out. They're not accepted. Okay? In general, there are no exceptions observed in the scientific community. So there's nothing that brings more complexity, but instead you have the very opposite. The second law basically says the opposite. You have, you have a movement from complexity to disorganization, from order to disorder, except true miracles. When I went to UNM, this was my physics text, Sears and Zemansky. You're younger than I am. You probably used a different one. Remember, I'm 98. <laughs> Thus, this is kind of a good description here. It, it kind of gives you an idea of what the law is all about. Even though it's in a physics book, I think it's pretty expressive. It says, in dealing with heat, thus heat always flows spontaneously from a hotter to a colder body. Never goes the other way. Gases, if you're dealing with gases... Gases always seep through an opening spontaneously from a region of high pressure to a region of low pressure. Never goes the other way. That's the second law. Gases and liquids left by themselves always tend to mix. They never unmix, right? You know that when you try to mix things. Iron rusts. It never purifies. It always rusts. People grow old, so second law of thermodynamics applies to each of us biologically. Anyone getting younger here? Okay. These are all examples of irreversible processes that take place naturally in only one direction and by their one-sidedness express the second law of thermodynamics. See that? You experience it all the time. You women experience it when you clean the house, you go... On vacation for two weeks, lock the doors, nobody's there. What do you come back to? Dusty house. In spite of all of the effort you made, movement from organization to disorganization, second law. You can't prevent it. You can't stop the aging process. So that's out of a physics book, just to kind of describe it. So the second law is an irreversible tendency to unwind or an irreversible tendency to degrade degenerate, decay, it's always that downward cycle. I think God turned it on at the fall of mankind. I'm going to show you a passage that I use to support that idea. There's several verses in the Bible that state the second law of thermodynamics. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Another way of looking at it, movement from organization to disorganization. What does evolution require? It requires the very opposite, and if there's no observed violations of this law, it basically outlaws the theory of evolution and, in fact, supports the idea of creation. The law of decay is another way of looking at it, and there's several passages, Isaiah 51, 6, Romans 8, 20 through 22, and here's one for you families here. Just a cartoon. Monkey can't fight. Second law of thermodynamics. All things which include bedrooms move from a state of order to disorder. If you had a physicist kid, he might use that on you. 
This is just on chart form. If you want to look at it from a chart view on a chart, we're increasing order. The degree of order increases as you go up. And over time, evolution says that you have progress upward from particles or non-living matter to a single cell to multi-cells and vertebrates to vertebrates to you and I in the room. That's the theory of evolution. Second law says the very opposite and all of scientists accept it and realize that there are no exceptions. The trend is the very opposite. So that second law from physics, thermodynamics is a branch of physics. Uh, we have evidence against evolution and, in fact, evidence of what we see in Scripture itself. Just to illustrate it again, second law of thermodynamics, simple illustration You have organization here. You have a pyramid of ping pong balls. And you probably don't even have to do much. Just the normal progress of time and any little shaking at the top of the staircase. And what happens? There's the tendency to disorganize. The theory of evolution says you can go the other way. You have a room with ping pong balls spread all over. All you need is more time, right? <laughs> Given enough time and chance, and those ping pong balls are going to go up the stairs and organize themselves into a simple pyramid. This is very simple. This is magnitudes away from life. Evolution requires lots of faith, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the second law. Clear? It's yeah. not it's not complicated to understand. Another illustration, you have a junkyard full of crashed cars and you have all of the parts. Theory of evolution says, given enough time you can make a new car. and chance, yep, all you need is just maybe a few million years and you might, all these particles are going to come together and you might end up with a Model T. Given more time, after 10 million years, we make our point here. <laughs> That's the theory of evolution. All right? Impossible, right? Instead, we have the opposite. Given more time, and that junkyard ends up in a pile of just rusty fragments of pieces of metal. Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. Of old, in other words, these are things that we know about from ancient times. From old, you, speaking to God, the psalmist, You founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. In other words, God is the creator. Now, it doesn't talk about the fall here, but something happened to that good creation, that very good creation. Verse 26, even they will perish, degeneration. But you endure. God's not affected by the second law. And all of them, in other words, all of his creation, will wear out like a garment. That's biblical, the tendency to degenerate. Like a garment. You have to buy new clothes. In my case, every 40 years or so, but still have to do it. Like clothing, this is Hebrew poetry, parallelism. One line states an idea, the second line reinforces it with different words. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. Now, this is synonymous parallelism. The change here is not positive, it's negative. But change, in other words, a movement from one state to another state. 
All of them will wear out like a garment. In the New Testament, we have one of the clearest statements, and not only statements, but I think it gives us a lot of insight into the second law of thermodynamics. Does anyone know where it's found? I already gave it to you. New Testament. Or more specifically. Hmm? Well, resurrection, but there's a passage. Romans 8. In fact, you can start earlier to get the context. Get the context he's talking about. Basically, the present suffering of this present time isn't to be compared with the, the glory that we will experience in the future. But in this context, he's contrasting what we experience now. And there's going to be a transformation in the future. And the comparison, there's no comparison. We suffer now, but uh, the suffering is not to be compared with what we will experience. And then he says, for the creation was subjected to futility. What is that talking about? That's Genesis 3. I think, and when it says was subjected, that means something outside of the creation. Ultimately, only God can do this. God subjected the creation to a process of futility or vanity or emptiness, this idea of degeneration. You're locked into. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, it wasn't the creation's choice. It was created very good. Genesis 1, 31. Not willingly, because, but because of him, capitalized, who subjected it. The first part wasn't clear. The him, God, subjected it. But it's temporary. There's a future. There's a hope. It's temporary. Verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery. No violations of the second law of thermodynamics. It's fixed. It's not eternal, but it's fixed. It's like slavery. You can't violate it. You can't get around it. You can't grow younger. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. That's that idea of decay, degeneration. But there's a future. It's going to go into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You and I believe in resurrection We believe in a future glory. We believe in an eternal state that is different from what we're experiencing now. The creation also is going to be restored to even greater glory than what is described in Genesis chapter 1. God's going to turn off the second law. I think he turned it on when he subjected it as a result of the fall. Make sense? But he's describing the second law of thermodynamics that the created realm experiences. It's going to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. He's anthropomorphizing here. He's looking at the creation as if it's a person. It, it suffers. It Groaning, you might say groans and suffers, the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, we experience it first century. It's been going on since the fall of man, but eventually there's going to be a restoration. And then you can read the other verses as well. But the point he's getting at is that's our hope. We will be set free. And when we are set free, the creation will also be set free. And to some extent, I believe that is what's going to take place during the Millennial Kingdom. Not entirely. 
The curse is not entirely lifted during the millennial kingdom, but God is going to modify the second law of thermodynamics during the millennial kingdom. A thousand years, according to Revelation 20. After that, that is heaven, or that's the eternal state, Revelation 21 and 22, I believe. That's the eternal state where the curse is totally removed. There's no longer any death. There's still death in the millennial kingdom. Uh, this may be new to some of you, but but anyway, one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible of the second law of thermodynamics by Paul himself, Romans. And there's other verses as well. That was evidence from physics. Okay, now let's take a look at evidence from biology. And this is very powerful because a theory of evolution primarily deals with the area of biology. And we've kind of already illustrated it, but let me illustrate it with another vivid way of thinking about the theory of evolution. And let me just introduce this whole idea of life and the complexity of life. Uh, Let's say you're walking behind the mountain where there's lots of trees. Now, this isn't Sandia area, but... Uh, Think of a forest, and you're walking, and you're spending the day, and you're hiking there, and you go off the trail, and you think, I wonder if anybody's wandered off into this area over here. I'm quite a ways from the trail, and the vegetation's pretty thick, and there's no trail here. But then at the foot of one of these trees, you see this little silver thing with buttons on it and a little screen there, and you look at it. And you say, hmm, isn't evolution wonderful after millions of years? Notice what natural processes has produced. Intuitively, you know, that's, that's absurd, right? Well, when we talk about life, this is just a simple calculator. The electronics is not very sophisticated. You can basically just add, subtract. You can take square roots and percentages, and that's about it. That's a simple calculator. But it's ridiculous to think that natural process is going to produce all of the buttons, bring them all together at the right time, all of the electronics, the screen, the case, bring it all together by natural pro- It just doesn't, that doesn't happen naturally. Point I'm making here, that's nothing compared to life. It's nothing compared to life. So let's look at evidence of design. And the point here, there's evidence all over the universe of design that natural processes do not produce. And if there's evidence of design, that implies what? There must be a designer. Just like there must be somebody that envisioned and designed a calculator and then put those thoughts together in a plan such that somebody could build a calculator There has to be a calculator maker and there has to be a calculator designer. Because of the detail of the design of life, there has to be a designer of life and a creator of life. So let's look at evidence from genetics because this is the smallest components of life. And if life came about by simple means, in other words, simple life, then the simplest life that we can find If the evolutionist is right, then we should see some evidence that would support his idea. Otherwise, we're going to have to believe that there has to be a designer because it's too complex, and that's the point. 
And by the way, the study of genetics, the study of microbiology is a relatively new science. And I've been saying all along that both those sciences are basically destroying the theory of evolution. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So evolution says life began in simple form. Now this is a very simplified drawing of one cell. Very simplified drawing, but notice how complex it is. It has has a plasma membrane. It has all of these uh, parts. In fact, I'm going to just flash a few. One cell has the most complex molecule in the universe. We call that DNA. That is like a computer code. It's a whole language. It contains readable information. We have the RNA, which is almost as complex. And I'm not a biologist, I don't have, or a microbiologist. The mitochondrion, also, that's a huge molecule. In fact, it's a system of molecules that basically regulate the energy processes in a cell. It's like a power plant, you might say. But it's more than that, because it not only produces power or converts power, but it also transports it transforms it, utilizes it, directs it. So there's a lot of information required to accomplish what the mitochondrion does. ATP molecule, polysaccharides, we could go on. Just, you know, some of these, I'm not even sure what they are. Proteins, you've heard of proteins, amino acids. These are just some of the components of, quote, simple life form, one cell. All of life is made up of cells. Plant life, animal life, human life, made up of one cell. We are made up of trillions of them. There are one-celled animals. There's a whole spectrum from one cell all the way to people. But the point I'm making is they're extremely complex. So uh, these are not just simple parts. In fact, it's very complex. Michael Behe wrote a book. In fact, it's somewhat of a classic. He's a microbiologist. And the conclusion of his book is basically, I'll give you some of what he has stated, is that uh, evolution is impossible at the microbiological level. In other words, at the cellular level, it's, it's basically outlaws the idea of evolution. He talks about irreducible complexity. And this is basically his illustration This device here is irreducibly complex. It's a very simple device. Some of you have, you know, have them or used to. They make more sophisticated mousetraps now. But a simple mousetrap, you have to have a base, you have to have a holding bar, you have to have a spring, you have to have a hammer, you have to have a, have a catch. And Michael Behe says you have to have all of the components together, all in working order, all in the same place at the same time, or what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Evolution says you, you have uh, one step, then you have another step, then you have another step. Michael Behe says that everything relating to life is irreducibly complex. And life is far more complex, or even the simple components of life are more complex than the simple illustration that he uses. But even in the simple illustration, you have to have everything together before it works. He says, the cumulative result shows with piercing clarity that life is based on machines. In other words, there are components or machines and multiple machines of different kinds. 
In fact, one cell is more complex than like a factory. In fact, I've got another statement. I mean, a factory is not even close to the complexity of one cell. But if you imagine a factory that has conveyor belts, that's transporting maybe raw materials from one place to be processed in another place, to be assembled, to be labeled, to be stamped, and all the process of a factory, you have more of that in a cell. And you have uh, intelligence that keeps track of all of these things, and you have a tracking system. You have every communication idea within one single cell. Did I, um, if I remember right, I don't, I'm not sure if I did, but the machines he's talking about, that they, the scientists have looked behind, tried to look behind the machines, and they just yeah. I mean, they, sure. they want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the study of what makes a cell work. Yeah. And they can only get so far. But it's, well, the further they go, the more complex exactly, everything is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's it just like a universe within a cell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's extremely complex. In fact, I've got another statement by an unbeliever that is also a microbiologist. I'll read it to you in a moment, but the essence of what he's saying is one... Single cell is more complex than anything that man has produced. More complex than a computer, more complex than the entire space program that put a man on the moon. Man has not produced anything that even comes close to the complexity of one single cell. I know that the scientists who are studying the God particle. Mm-hmm. Have they gotten anywhere with No. No, and they won't. No. Unless they read the book of Genesis. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Now, these machines, Michael Behe wrote a book. In fact, it's an easy-to-read book because he simplifies everything. He has some technical parts, but he sets them apart from the regular reading. Irreducible complexity? No. The title of the book is Darwin's Black Box. Darwin's Black Box. And by the way, I'm going to give you a bibliography at the end as well. Yeah. Darwin's Black Box and what he is saying by using that title, to Darwin, one cell was like a black box. It was kind of like that gray box over there. It looked pretty simple. You know, it's just a screen with a little frame around it and a few buttons. And the point he's making to Darwin, that's what a cell was. Yes, it has a nucleus, but it's more like just a jelly material that's in the middle there and then surrounded by this other fluid material. But essentially, Darwin's black box, he did not look inside to see all of the electronics. All he saw was the outside. And that's why he titles the book. But today, microbiology has looked inside the black box. And when you look inside the black box, you discover what Michael Denton says... Molecular biology has shown that even the simplest of all living systems on Earth today, bacterial cells, one-celled animals, and he says some other things, uh, are exceedingly complex objects, far more complicated than anything built by man. So there is no such thing as simple life form. And in fact, life... And cells reproduce themselves. It has all of the information contained to reproduce itself. So that very complex one cell 
reproduces itself into another very complex cell. In fact, we came about as a result of the joining of cells that multiplied and formed us as a result of this whole process of reproduction. This computer, or any computer, is very sophisticated. In fact, they tell me that I've got more on this computer than what they had when they put a man on the moon, more computing power, just one computer. This computer is not even close to the complexity of one cell. This computer does not reproduce itself. So I have to go back to the Apple store and get another one <laughs> as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. Okay? So that's simple life form. So my Denton No, Michael Denton, I quoted him, the conclusion that he came to. He's an evolutionist. Maybe he's abandoned it, but he wrote the book Evolution in Crisis, and he presents his research and current research And the conclusion he came to is that evolution will soon be considered, I can't remember how he said it, the cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. You don't need to be approaching, I mean, I just can't imagine everything that. Well, it should be. But the heart is hardened. Only the gospel converts. Yeah, he's not a believer, but he's an honest microbiologist. Conclusion? Evolution, positive evidence, superficial, that's what we looked at last week. Real evidence destroys the theory. Creation, science supports intelligent design. There has to be a designer of life. Intelligent design. And science supports a biblical worldview that speaks even more beyond simply uh, creation. So that's a single cell. We could also look at DNA. That's just kind of a model of the complexity of DNA contained in all DNA. And by the way, again, all life has DNA. Plant life, animal life, human life. In fact, it is the the essential element that specifies all of the characteristic of whether it be a plant, all of the characteristic of whether it be a certain animal, All your characteristics, we said our younger brother here, his DNA specifies spiked hair. (laughs) Others have blonde hair or dark hair. Uh, Your DNA specifies curly, (laughs) as well as your eye color, skin color, your height. Every aspect of who we are, the DNA has all of the information. It's like the computer code that is the, the... the plan for wherever we are, and that's true of all of life. Now, can DNA come about as a result of natural means? And just some descriptive terms here. It's a double helix. It's a whole library within a molecule. And as I said, it uh, contains all of the information and all that is required to disseminate that information to produce whatever organism the DNA represents. There's more information stored than any other known system. And this is just one molecule, the DNA molecule. It's one molecule, very complex, however. Just to illustrate it, here's the dividing of a cell. When a cell divides the DNA, that double helix comes apart, so it takes half of the information to the new cell and retains the other half in the cell, actually 
which is the new cell. I don't know. But when they divide, you have the double helix separating such that you have all of the information transferred so that other cell is basically a clone. It's identical to the, or the division, the two are identical. They're like clones. And this goes on continuously. Your cells have been dividing and reproducing. I don't know what the rate is, but as we sit here, perhaps thousands, ten thousands. You know the numbers? You're the biologist? No. Your assignment is to look it up. (laughs) That's just a photograph of cell dividing. Just to illustrate, there's one celled animal to the right, the photograph. And Chiquilla coli has three million what they call codons. They're like words. In other words, has a library of three million words, the DNA of that organism. They're three-letter codons. It's equivalent to three volumes of a thousand pages at a thousand words per page contained in the DNA of that single cell organism. So just the DNA is more complex than you can imagine. And this is at a molecular level, so it's miniaturized. Uh, We can't do that. That's a one-celled animal. Humans have two billion three-letter codons in their DNA. See the double helix in the photograph there? It's joined together. It splits apart when the cells divide. And each of the components has information stored. It's a library, basically. It's a computer program. It's equivalent to 2,000 volumes of 1,000 pages at 1,000 words per page. That's a huge library. Anybody know what the Zimmerman Library? It's more than 2,000, but it's a pretty good-sized library. That's all contained in one molecule, human DNA. Okay. And there's complexity everywhere. Everywhere we look, we see complexity. We've gone to one extreme, the extreme of the cellular level. Now we have many cells to make up creatures, and in some cases, trillions of cells. So you not only have the complexity of one cell, but now if you have multi-cells, you have that complexity multiplied. And in the case of human beings, you know, we're talking about trillions and trillions of cells. But even the evolutionists might have said, well, bees are pretty simple. Well, they're not very simple. But yet there's a lot of complexity there. They're social. So they have some social component to them besides just the biological and physical components. And they're interesting creatures. And by the way, we could take virtually every little creature that God has created and talk about its complexity and its uniqueness and how evolution couldn't produce it. And you're probably familiar with one of the main things that uh, bees produce for us, producing honey. There's a colony of one queen and an average of about 6,000 workers in a colony. Two to 3,000 eggs are produced to continue to populate the, the colony and to keep it thriving because bees have a short lifespan. And by the way, bees go through different stages. Uh, I'm just trying to impress you with a little bit of the complexity that we have here. And uh, one writer illustrated it by saying, they have six careers. How many of you have six careers? 
I started off as an engineer, worked as an engineer, and then I do more Bible teaching, so I've got two, but bees have six, all right? And they go through these different stages. In their early stages, their main occupation is sanitation. Their main task is to clean the room, clean their rooms, just like you assign to your kids. Keep your room clean, in spite of the second law of thermodynamics. So they stay close to the hive, and they maintain the hive. The impurities they remove, obviously I guess they get dirty as well, I guess there's dust there or whatever, but they remove and keep the hive clean. So they go through a stage, and then they change, and their bodies change to correspond as well. So they continue to develop. So they're very complex. They also become dietitians. They become the ones that nurture and feed the younger bees, and they tend towards the the eggs and help in the production and the development of the eggs into into full-grown bees. So they're dietitians, and they provide food, or they take food and nourish. Uh, Then they manufacture. They go into manufacturing, where they produce honey. That's one of their main functions as well. So they extract the pollen from uh, the plants, bring it, process it, manufacture it, and deposit it, and then continue the process. But that stage only lasts for a short period of time. And as the, the hive continues to develop, then others replace them as they take other jobs. Then they go into construction, and if a hive is damaged, at that stage, they are the ones that repair and reconstruct damaged portions of hives. And then they go into security. They are the ones that are kind of scouts to make sure that predators or other insects don't invade, and they will fight off. In fact, they will fight off. If you ever get stung by a bee, these are the ones that sting you because you're getting too close to the hive. So they go into security, and then they go into (laughs) R&D, research and development. I use R&D there because I don't have that much space. What they do is they go out as scouts, and they look for new patches of flowers or fruit trees or whatever, new sources of pollen, so that those that are manufacturing, they have a place, new sources, after they've exhausted other sources. They go into R&D. And each stage, they transform, and their bodies transform to match the uh, task that they are going through. So they're not simple. And they do this together. They work together. There's a communication system. They have a way of communicating to others. In other words, they find a new patch and they're able to communicate to the the right bees where to go to find these new areas of uh, sources of pollen. They actually, it's it's almost a dance that they do. Yes. It tells them it's like incredible. Yeah. How they communicate. Yeah. So they're extremely social and they work together and the hive is very active as as you've probably seen. And we benefit in that they produce honey. And that's just one example, one creature. Uh, So there's complexity all over, and there's lots of examples all the way to mankind. So there has to be an intelligent designer. You know what Solomon said? Study the ants. You learn 
Yep, he sure did in Proverbs. We also saw in the book of Job, remember we used that in our introduction, where God instructs Job, ask the beasts and they will teach you. Ask the earth. It'll speak, in other words, geophysics. You can study geophysics. It'll teach you as well. And also biology. So there's intelligent design at all levels everywhere. And if you just want to look at mankind, the crown of God's creation, you can study the human brain. And it's incredible. Human brain's incredible. Isn't evolution wonderful to produce such a brain? 12 billion brain cells. 10 trillion body cells that continually reproduce. So if one cell is more complex than anything man has put together, just think of the complexity of 10 trillion cells working together so that we can think, so that we can function, and all of this is coordinated. Human eye is incredible. In fact, every eye is incredible. Sensitive to six quanta of light able to process light. What is a quanta? Oh, it's one of those little tiny pieces of light. I don't have a mathematical quantum. Light is measured in quanta. I'm going to skip this slide because we don't have time. There's more examples. But just like I mentioned, and we, we could virtually look at virtually every little creature. These are real interesting. And I, I kind of... Use these with kids mainly, ants that eat junk food, and it, it harms them, and yet they like it so much that they do it. And there's some other things that are going on there with other creatures. I don't want to get into that, but moles that eat animals and don't have to, beetles with big guns, bombardier beetle, extremely complex. In fact, there's some chemicals that they produce two different chemicals that they store in two different places. How did that evolve? And if they have a predator, they have a gun, and they mix the chemicals that explodes and blasts the, the predator. You know, how did that come about by natural means? Moths with ear problems. In fact, there's a combination of bats and moths and, I think, mites in the ears of the moths. So little tiny mites in the ears of the moths, and they only invade one ear because if the moth goes totally deaf, then the the bats will eat all the moths, and not only do the moths die, but these little creatures in the ear die as well. But what they do is they disable the, the moths enough so that the bats can detect them with their sonar, and with the sonar they're able to eat the moths, but they don't eat them all because the little mites keep them. So there's a combination there. And by the way, the bees as well, they work with, they pollinate plants. So plants need the bees. How does that evolve? And there's bunches of stuff, uh, carnivorous plants. Anyway, evidence from biology, there's what's called the anthropocentric principle. Anyone heard of that? You can probably figure it out. Anthro. Relating to anthropology or mankind, pocentric, centered in mankind. Scientists and more and more are recognizing that, well, I'll just state what they say, everything about the universe tends toward man. In other words, man is the center of the universe. I'm not talking about directionally or positionally, although 
Russ Humphreys thinks that the Earth is close to the center of the universe, which I think, if he thinks so, I do too. Everything about the universe tends toward man, and what they mean by that is toward making life possible and sustaining it. In other words, all of the properties of the universe, all of the laws of nature, all of what God has created has been created such that it has some effect And without some of these elements, there could not be life on Earth. So you have to have all of the elements universe-wide in order for there to be life on Earth. The Earth is at the right spot in the galaxy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The Goldilocks idea. So everything about the universe tends toward man, toward making life possible and sustaining it. Now, I don't agree with Hugh Ross. He's an old earth creationist, but I think he uh, has an accurate statement here. And he's got some examples. I use some of those examples in his book as well. But there's others as well that demonstrate, if you just look at some of the constants, if you tweak the constants just a tiny bit, it throws everything off, and eventually there's the impossibility of life. One example that came to mind real quick here is the moon is at the, the exact right spot to produce tides, which have all kinds of effects on the oceans, and we need the tides for the cleansing of the oceans for one thing, but other things as well. If the moon were only a few, I don't remember what the number is, just in the number of meters further away, there'd be no tides. If it were just a few meters closer to the Earth, the gravitational pull would cause tides that would overshadow the continents. And you'd have always flooding of the continents, so life wouldn't be possible. It's just one example. So there's, there's just thousands of these, these examples from not only constants, but laws of nature, positions of stars, positions of the planets, position of the Earth that uh, center on man. It's called the anthropocentric principle, which supports that there's a designer and that God put mankind here. Earth is the priority and there is not life on other planets. Now, there is other life. There are aliens. I believe in aliens, except the Bible calls them angels and demons. Okay? So, there's ecological interdependence were utterly dependent upon the sun but plants require just a simple example plants require carbon dioxide and plants exude oxygen which we need and there's a constant balance and God has maintained that balance there's the hydro hydrologic balance as well in spite of what global warming enthusiasts say The water cycle continues, and uh, we have evaporation from oceans, lakes, and streams that condenses. It purifies water for us, by the way. And that condensation, it also comes from uh, plants, uh, falls not only on mountains, but everywhere, but in mountains, it stores. Mountains store large quantities of water so that we get it at the right time. So there's a tremendous balance here. Then it flows from the mountains into groundwater and lakes and streams, etc. And we use, utilize it, and there's a balance. It just continues. So there's lots of these. So evidence from physics, evidence from biology, 
anthropocentric principle, evidence from cause and effect, another fundamental law of physics, the law of cause and effect. It's a fundamental premise observed in every science, again, just like the second law, relates to all phenomenon. The essence of it is there's no effect greater than the cause. So there's always a greater effect than the cause, and that points to a primary cause. What started the first cause? What's the ultimate cause? Now, we see it physically, but if you think in terms of origins, you know, where does it come from? Have they, has there been an infinite regress of causes and effects? Well, there seem to have, there has to be a starting point. What started it? And what's the origin? Well, there is a first cause of limitless space. If you observe the universe and astrophysics, uh, no one has observed the edges of the universe. And there's some theories about it. We might talk about them later. But space, from our perspective, seems to be limitless. Well, what is the cause of limitless space? What is the cause of endless time, boundless energy, interrelationships, incredible complexity, even spiritual values, human responsibility, human life? Well, limitless space, there has to be something that is infinite. And we would say somebody that is infinite. Endless time... Someone that is eternal. Now, these are just logical conclusions. There has to be an ultimate cause that is eternal of endless time. Now, time is not endless. I think time had a beginning. And when did time begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, so creation. Yep. And it's going to have an end. I think the last event of world history is the great white throne judgment at the end of uh, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And when we die, I think we go outside of time. I think time is part of the created realm. I think we go outside of time, and eternity is different. We can't envision it. But anyway, what appears, at least to the scientists, as endless time, there has to be something that is eternal, a God that is eternal. Boundless energy, there must be something that is omnipotent with all power, the source of all power, the source of all energy. So the cause of boundless energy is an omnipotent God, interrelationships and an omnipresent God, incredible design, an omniscient creator that knows all things, spiritual values, he must be spiritual as well, human responsibility, Someone that has volition. So we're talking about a person. The ultimate cause must be personal, spiritual, volitional. First cause of human life must be living. Or you might say all life. There must be someone living, a personal God that is living. So the principle or the law of cause and effect, the logical source of all causes has to be God himself, the God of the Bible. So evidence from cause and effect, and then we'll conclude with evidence from Scripture. And I only have a few statements at this time. If you want, I was also thinking we might have another session later just on Genesis 1, and I'll give you a scientific 
approach to Genesis 1 from a creationist perspective. It's up to you guys. Okay, one book. <laughs> oh, two books. Okay, all right. So Genesis 1 is kind of the, the crux, central, most important passage. Genesis 1 in terms of creation, because that's the creative event of six days of creation. And there's no support in Scripture anywhere an idea of evolution. In fact, I view Genesis 1 as something of a polemic. I think when Moses wrote Genesis 1, he was presenting arguments against the current thinking of the Egyptians. Because the children of Israel came out of Egypt. They grew up in Egypt. Moses grew up and was trained in Egypt. And what God revealed to him in Genesis 1 goes contrary to the Egyptian worldview. The children of Israel were going into Canaan and a Babylonian Canaanite background culture. And Genesis 1 is also a polemic against not only the gods, but the world worldview of the Babylonians and the Canaanites. And I don't think it's coincidental, but I believe that Genesis 1 is a polemic in the 21st century against worldly, or you might say secular thinking, in terms of origins. So don't try to squeeze current scientific theories into Genesis 1. If we go through Genesis 1, I'll show you, let Genesis 1 set the foundation for your science, and then now you can fit your science into Genesis 1. That's the proper way. Make sense? And not only Genesis 1, but there are at least 77 other clear scriptures from Genesis to the book of Revelation that teach God as creator. And there's nothing in scripture that suggests even an idea of evolution. So not only, so we can conclude, evolution, what do we say? Positive evidence is only superficial. Real evidence destroys the theory. For creation, science supports intelligent design. Science supports the biblical worldview, so we want to know the biblical worldview in order to set a framework and a foundation to do good science. Okay? That's it. Any questions before we leave? You asked you that there is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Romans 1. Verses 19 and 20. In fact, that whole passage, I, I think I spent seven Sundays on just that passage, and it's on my website as well, Romans 1. But the essence of it is God has made himself crystal clear to every single human being on the face of the earth. The emphasis of that passage from 19 through 23 is God has made it evident, God has made it clear. These things are known, the word to know, the word to make evident, the idea of God revealing. God has revealed himself to every human being on the face of the earth. He's done it internally, I think through conscience. He's done it externally, verse 20, through the th it says through the things that have been made, in other words, the creation. And he's done it since 
the beginning of creation is what verse 20 also says. So Adam and Eve and every one of their descendants has received that external revelation of the creation. Some of the things that we're talking about speak about the heavens declaring the glory of God. In other words, you can learn by studying astrophysics. You can learn from biology. Biology teaches you things. We use that Job 12 passage. Speak to the beasts. They can teach you. Speak to the earth. Speak to the birds, etc. So you can study all of the sciences, and it gives you evidence. That's what Romans 1 is saying. Therefore, the end of verse 20 is, therefore, they are without excuse. This is the beginning of Paul's theology relating to man's lostness. Man is condemned because every single human being knows that there is a God. An atheist is simply someone, in verse 18 says, we are suppressors of the truth. An atheist has suppressed that knowledge that God has made evident He has suppressed it so far that he has deceived himself into thinking that there is no God. But he, in reality, knows there has to be God. I just want to share, because this follows a good story with the women's Bible study that I'm doing. We're studying Romans. And we just studied Romans chapter one this week. One of the questions referenced, which is quoted, and she shared, it was probably when she was in her 30s, she did not know God, did not believe in him. Driving him on the streets, he looked at the sandy, and it was like this epiphany she had. Looking at the sandy mountain, she just knew there was more. There, there was there had more. to there be. Had to, they had to have come from someone. And so that thought put her on this journey. Uh, you know, obviously she had covered the gospel in Christ. Right. But um, it was such just God. God is evident creation. She shared how it was through looking yeah, at God first to her. So instead of suppressing the truth, like right. Romans 1 says, right. she embraced it. Yeah. And I believe no matter where a person is, if they, they can be in the darkest Chicago, we can't say Africa anymore because there's lots of Christians there, the darkest place where you know you would suspect that maybe the gospel hasn't been presented, I believe if they respond positively to that revelation that God has given... God's going to send a Bible or a missionary or send someone. Romans 1, I think, also stresses that that revelation is adequate to condemn. Therefore, they are all without excuse. But it's not adequate to save. What we need is the gospel message. Okay? So all men are accountable 